Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Damian Conover shares which drug manufacturers have the most secure dividends, Eric Jacobson discusses the winners and losers of the most recent bond fund sell-off, Rebecca Schooneman tells us what we can expect from the food industry in the coming months, PIMCO's Tim Steffen considers these factors surrounding IRA conversions, and Christine Benz discusses how retired investors can handle their RMDs this year. Let's get started. Here's Damien Conover of Morningstar Research Services. Today, we're talking about dividends and the large cap pharmaceutical industry. And I think it's an important topic because we think the dividends look very secure. And the reason why we think they're secure, even in the backdrop of this coronavirus pandemic, is that drugs are something of a necessity. So even as we social distance and potentially go into a recessionary environment here, even if it's just for a short period, people are still going to want to buy their drugs because they need them for them to manage their diseases. Another really important reason why we think these dividends are secure is the dividend payouts for these companies generally is around 50%. So that means the earnings that the pharmaceutical firms have, they tend to spend about 50% of them on the dividend. That gives these firms some room to navigate any sort of short falls in earnings due to any of the pandemic concerns that are going on right now. And in aggregate, when we think about the dividend yield for this group, it's close to 3%. So in a world where yield is hard to find, the large cap pharmaceutical stocks really do provide a nice sense of yield and support for that yield. Beyond the dividend yield, we do see the group as undervalued. And a couple of the names that we like are Pfizer and AbbVie. Both of these stocks have strong dividends and a lot of support for those dividends. What we think the market is missing is the very strong pipelines at both of these companies. These companies are focused in drugs for immunology disorders, which tend to have very strong pricing power that we think the market isn't fully appreciating. So in summary, when we look at the large cap pharmaceutical industry, we see strong dividend yields that are very secure. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com Alexa. Now, Tom Loricella of Morningstar, Inc. interviews Eric Jacobson from Morningstar Research Services. For Morningstar, I'm Tom Loricella, and I'm happy to be speaking to Eric Jacobson today about the bond market terminal that we saw back in March and April, and how that affected which funds were the winners during this time of turbulence, and which funds were the losers. Eric, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you. So why don't we start by first just recapping um, the two stages of the bond market that we saw in March and then in April. It was really kind of a, a, a before and after kind of story. What was the dynamic? Yeah, it's really interesting because to a large degree, you know, it's all been based on fear rather than actual data, right? So, <clears throat> pardon me, once, once things... Uh, really kicked off around February 20th. You know, you saw the equity markets tumble, and suddenly everyone in the bond market was scrambling. And what I mean by that is there was a need because of the fear, and to some degree because of what was going on in the equity market, investors were dumping everything uh, to try and raise cash or using cash for this or that and pulling it out of portfolios. Whatever it was, cash was the king. And that even affected uh, markets as usually liquid and 
unbelievably so is the treasury market. So it really rippled through the entire bond market. And so that fear that you were talking about, it also rippled through to the credit markets as investors became very worried about the economic impact. How did that play out for bond funds? Right. So it was really a double whammy. On the one hand, the initial wave of fear was liquidity driven. Everything just sort of froze up. Concurrent with that, all of a sudden we started having that credit fear. In other words, we started out with a liquidity crisis. It hadn't yet become a solvency question. But once it started to look like we could go for quite a while and companies could actually go belly up and so forth, then anything that had a real even whiff of credit risk, and especially things like high yield and bank loans and so forth, they really took it on the chin. Okay. And then we had that very sharp reversal um, starting in late March. Uh, what, what happened there? So as you know, we've never seen anything like it in terms of government response. Uh, it started with the Fed and it just kept going. So that, you know, the Fed committed to pumping more than $2 trillion into the system. Uh, initially, a lot of that was really targeted just to keep liquidity up. Um, but you know, they, they started rolling out additional programs. We had fiscal involvement. In other words, Congress and the Treasury got involved uh, actually spending money, not just pumping it into the system like the Fed does. And at some point, this, the message got through to the market that we're going to do everything we can to keep the system going. Now, that didn't assure everybody about the economy. And, uh, you know, areas of the credit markets were still under a lot of pressure and still are today to some degree. Um, but it, it did as something that a lot of managers talked to us as, excuse me, referred to as sort of putting an umbrella over the market. And managers want to get under that umbrella and own assets that the Fed in particular is going to support. So the Fed is actually going into the bond market and buying securities, right? So what's interesting about that is the answer is yes. And it is similar in some ways to the quantitative easing that we've had over the last several years, where they were buying uh, mortgage-backed securities and treasuries and so forth. And they have, in fact, expanded that palette quite a bit. What's interesting about it is there are a lot of areas we haven't quite seen them doing a lot of buying yet, but all it really took was the initial declaration that they're going to buy uh, to get investors sort of under that umbrella that I talked about earlier, where they're like, okay, we can buy this stuff now because we know the Fed's going to be there to support it. So what did that mean in terms of what worked and didn't work for bond fund strategies during these two periods? Right. So Initially, nothing worked, right, in terms of the sell-off. Eventually, it made a big difference to have uh, more rate-sensitive treasury bonds and so forth. Uh, you may recall we had a very sharp rally in uh, intermediate and longer-term bonds as yields across the yield curve went down under 1%. Uh, and then things that fell out of bed, amazingly enough, in some ways, were uh, things like securitized instruments that had AAA ratings, but about which the market might be concerned about liquidity. Uh, and in some cases, you know, things that would have a ripple effect from credit problems underneath as well. As far as the rebound is concerned, uh, you know, most of that stuff snapped back that uh, had gotten marked down very strongly. And, you know, what's, what's important and interesting here is we are even talking about really high quality investment grade stuff and certainly things with high ratings, corporate bonds and so forth. You know, on the other end of it, things that didn't snap back as well uh, generally had to do with energy. Uh, as you know, we had huge sell-off in oil prices and 
fears about energy companies uh, going out of business right away and so forth. And then uh, you also had one area of the market that was kind of interesting called uh, credit risk transfer securities, which are a new kind of mortgage-backed security that were designed to take risk off the books of the big mortgage agencies such as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and sell them to investors for a bunch of reasons, including what we call the thinness of the tranches. In other words, they're not that big and the lower spot that they take up in the capital structure. So they're riskier. Uh, Investors got really scared about those. They dumped them. And it also so happened that there were some big non-mutual fund investors, uh, mortgage REITs and so forth, who had lots and lots of this stuff. And when they started dumping it, uh, that didn't help either. So let's look at two examples of funds, uh, one that weathered this up and down very well and one that didn't. Uh, starting with the Carolyn Reams uh, Fund. Uh, folks might not know that name, but it's an interesting fund. Why don't you ex- uh, tell us a little bit about how this, their strategy uh, managed to do so well during this period? So the Carolyn Reams Fund that we've been talking about, Tom, is very tactically oriented. They, w- they wouldn't describe it that way. And I guess uh, it's, it, there, there's some nuance to that. When I say tactically, I mean that they're willing to move very quickly. Strategically, if you will, their overall process is to not hold things that they think are rich in valuation. And so coming into the crisis, they did not have a lot of credit risk. They had a very generic portfolio compared with sort of the broad investment grade bond market. And uh, that helped a lot. You know, they, they, did not get taken down very badly by the sell-off. And then as soon as things got cheap and they looked to the point where they were so cheap they had to buy, they did it very, very quickly. And they bounced back quite a bit on the other side. That's pretty unusual to, to sort of hit that mark that, that well and that easily. Another fund we discussed was a Guggenheim offering. This is a fund that did very poorly last year, uh, but managed to do very well during the market turmoil. What happened there? So the Guggenheim story is very interesting because it certainly affected their flagship total return fund, but uh, they did a lot of the same things across their portfolios. And what that meant was that going across 2019, and in fact, this really started late in 2017 and with some serious changes late in 2018, they took a lot of risk off the table. They saw valuations uh, become too high for their taste with pretty much any kind of credit sensitive issues. So they were really, really low on risk coming out of 2019. And what was interesting is they didn't uh, capitulate to that. You know, that's the thing we always worry about is that a manager is going to ride that through, feel the pain of those uh, falling behind, and then feel compelled to finally jump in and take risk at just the wrong time. And we've seen that over the years before, and they did not do that. So they did really, really well during the sell-off. I'm sure that they started to add back some risk uh, since then to some degree. I don't know how much. I don't think it was very much. I think they're probably still pretty pretty cautious and conservative. So I don't expect it was a lot, like some managers. Um, But the the fact that they stuck with it and the fact that they protected investors so well, and now for the, for the year to date, and even just since the crisis started, they're doing as well as anybody. They're real near the top of the group in, in their big funds. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, some fund strategies that did not do so well. Um, generally, we saw a couple, some number of funds at Putnam and Pioneer that were hit really hard and then didn't recover very much. What was the story there? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, I mentioned earlier something about CRTs, credit risk transfer securities. And so, again, they fell out of bed pretty badly. These are agency-issued securities, but they're not backed by the agencies the way other things are with a AAA rating. These securities are designed to lay risk off of the agencies and give it to investors. And uh, not only are they relatively new and investors worried about them because of these various issues with the securities themselves, but they were widely held among certain private investors, especially, uh, but also a, a couple of big, very big mutual funds, if you will. They, sorry, they were held in large size by a couple of mutual funds, not necessarily huge mutual funds. Uh, and when investors had to dump them in some cases, some of these private funds in particular, uh, they just got taken to the woodshed, if you will, and other investors didn't want to pick them up and buy them. So they have not bounced back nearly as well. Got it. So uh, when you pull all this together, uh, what are some lessons for bond fund investors uh, uh, going forward from this uh, really extraordinary period that we've been through? Well, one of the lessons that I try to focus on, and this was really true during the financial crisis, it wasn't as high profile in this case, but what I'm talking about here is willingness to take some interest rate sensitivity in your portfolio, regardless of what's happening in the marketplace, and look at it as an insurance policy. And what I mean by that is, and especially now, we have such low yields that it's really hard to imagine treasury bonds getting any low, having any lower yields and any higher prices. So I think a lot of investors normally would say, well, why would I even want to own those? The fact of the matter is, is that when there is a crisis, people do go to treasuries. They didn't rally very well right at the beginning of this crisis because of the liquidity issues, but eventually they did. And that was probably one of the very few things that worked uh, in anybody's bond portfolio. And so what I'm trying to say is you have to be willing to look at that element of your portfolio during good times when your stocks are rallying and everything else is doing well and say, hey, it's not doing anything here, but that's my insurance. And if you're fortunate enough to have it set up well, that's what's going to save you or at least soften the blow when everything else uh, goes to hell later on, you know, in, in, a bit, in a bad crisis like we've had here. Great. Eric, thanks very much for being with us. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next, Rebecca Schooneman from Morningstar Research Services tells us what we can expect from the food industry in the coming months. So we've had a lot of people ask us if there's going to be meat shortages. Uh, there's been a lot of concern about that, a lot of reports in the media about that. And there's definitely been significant disruption in the meat processing uh, supply chain. And the reason for this is that um, the process is very... Uh, labor intensive. It's not very automated. So you have employees standing in close proximity to each other. And therefore, there's been a lot of problems with contagion of the coronavirus. So, um, you know, due to that, there's been a lot of disruption. Uh, production of especially beef and pork um, ha is down uh, from normal levels. And we do expect that this will cause inflation with meat. And we're already seeing that, um, in fact, especially with beef and pork. So we do expect that that's likely to continue. 
and we do expect that, um, you know, as these manufacturers seek to increase production by simplifying cuts, that um, consumers will also have less variety to choose from. But I don't think that the disruption will be so severe that there will be empty meat cases. So you don't need to worry about that. Um, we expect that this production disruption will be limited to meat. You shouldn't um, see it in packaged food companies as packaged food manufacturing is significantly more automated with employees um, standing pretty far away from each other. So it should be just limited to meat. Uh, if you have any interest in trying plant-based meats, this summer will probably be a great time to do that. These um, companies such as Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger are um, taking advantage of meat inflation, and they're planning some great promotions and discounts for the summer to try to encourage consumers to try their products. So it'll be a great opportunity to, to do that. We do think that it's very likely that restaurant sales have bottomed. Uh, the food service suppliers have all reported that the last week of March marked the bottom in restaurant sales, with sales down about 60% year over year, so definitely severe declines. But as consumers and restaurants have adopted curbside pickup and delivery options, uh, we're, you know, we're seeing steady improvement from that level. And for the first week of May, uh, restaurant sales were down about 45% year over year. So definitely still pretty severe, but heading in the right direction. We do expect that most likely uh, several restaurants will close permanently as a result of the pandemic. Um, and these will probably be more concentrated into the local and independent restaurant chains uh, or independent restaurants. But um, don't worry, we, we don't think that we'll be left with uh, just the big chains. Uh, we do expect that once traffic patterns normalize, that new independent uh, restaurants and concepts will open up because consumers have exhibited a strong preference for for local restaurant concepts. So we expect that um, that you know those will will come back um, with a vengeance. You know once everything normalizes. We do think that U.S. Foods, which is a food service distributor that supplies the restaurants, is uh, those shares are very attractive currently. Uh, they're trading at about a 50% discount to our fair value estimate as there's, you know, been share weakness as there's um, been a, a lot of concern about the pandemic and its impact on U.S. Foods business. But we think that U.S. Foods is a very strong company. They've got a great balance sheet and a lot of liquidity and they'll weather the storm and that they'll be, um, you know, bounce right back as soon as traffic patterns normalize. Now, Christine Benz of Morningstar Inc. interviews PIMCO's Tim Steffen discussing IRA conversions. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. Amid market volatility, some investors may want to consider converting traditional IRA assets to Roth. Joining me to discuss some considerations to bear in mind before converting is Tim Steffen. He's an advisor education consultant for PIMCO. Tim, thank you for being here. Thanks for seeing so first, uh, let's discuss why someone would want to con consider converting traditional IRA assets to Roth in the first place. What are the big benefits of doing that? Yeah. So, I mean, you got to understand that when you're doing a Roth conversion, you're making a bet that you're going to say, I'm going to pay. I realize I have to pay some taxes now to do this. But my trade off for that is I'm going to get some tax free growth in this account for the rest of my life. So the trade off is, is am, how much tax am I willing to pay now to get that tax free growth? And, 
know, in some cases, you don't want to pay more tax now than you certainly would later in life. So you typically see it with people who are in lower brackets now than they might be later in life. Um, but the, the whole point is you're willing to pay some taxes now in exchange for tax-free income. And that's the primary thing behind it. Um, sometimes people take it to an extreme because they say, I just, whatever I do, I don't want to pay taxes in retirement. So I'll just pay it all now and be done with it. And that, that can work, but uh, it's better to be a little bit more surgical than, uh, than you know, take a, a shotgun approach to it like that. But yeah, it, Roth conversions can be great for those who are in, in really low tax brackets now and want to avoid maybe paying taxes at a higher rate later in life. And no required minimum distributions on Roths as well. That's the other part of it. Once it's in the Roth, during your lifetime, during your surviving spouse's lifetime, there's never a need to take any money out of that account ever. It can sit in there for the rest of your life. So it can be a really good estate planning tool from that standpoint. You effectively say, this is money I'm never going to need. I'm going to convert it to a Roth. I'll pay the taxes now on behalf of my heirs, my kids, whoever they may be. They'll never have to pay tax on it. Heirs do have required distribution. They have to take money out of it within a certain time periods. And we can, there's some good rules regarding that. But in general, the, the retiree, the owner and the spouse never have to touch it if they don't want to. Okay. So let's talk about why everyone seems to be talking about conversions right now. Is it because the taxes are due, the taxes due upon the conversion will be lower because balances are lower? What are some of the, the themes converging around why now might be a good time to consider conversions? Yeah, there's really two things that have been driving that. One is a set of laws that were passed back in December of 2019, what we call the SECURE Act, which changed the way beneficiaries are required to take distributions out of retirement accounts when they inherit it. Uh, without getting into too far of the details, basically retirees, in, or sorry, beneficiaries in most cases have to re, uh, liquidate an inherited retirement account within 10 years of the death of the original owner. Uh, which with large retirement account balance can mean a significant spike in the taxes for those beneficiaries. So what people have been saying is maybe if you're the owner, you're at a lower tax rate than what your heirs will be when they inherit it. Why don't you do a conversion? You pay the tax now at a lower rate than what your kids would be in perhaps when they inherit it. So we came into 2020 with that kind of being the hot topic is uh, let's look at maybe IRA owners uh, converting and paying the taxes on behalf of their kids so the kids have more money when they uh, uh, when they inherit it. Then we had the market turmoil that, that started back in late February and went throughout March, and people saw their account balances fall, and they started to think, hmm, now that my account, my IRA has smaller dollars in it, has less value, should I now consider a conversion? Which really creates two opportunities. Uh, let's say you were somebody who has always said, you know, I've got a thousand shares of ABC company stock in my IRA. I was going to convert those to a Roth now that thousand shares is worth 80% of what it was a couple of months ago. My tax cost to convert those thousand shares just became a lot less because of the, the turmoil in the market. The other side of that would be, I had planned to convert a thousand shares of ABC. Now I can convert 1200 shares or 2500 or 1500 shares, whatever the number may be, for roughly the same tax cost that I was willing to pay for the thousand. So when the stock comes back, I've got more shares inside my Roth. If you were somebody who always said, I was going to convert 50000 whether old value, new value, your tax cost is going to be the same. That's no different. It's just that what you can convert, you can get more shares of something into your Roth now. So when it does turn around, you've got a bigger chance of growth inside that Roth. Okay. So one question that sometimes comes up in the context of conversions is, age limits. And obviously, well, not maybe not obviously, but there are no age limits. But sometimes people wonder, yeah. well, perhaps I'm too old to convert because I won't necessarily recoup these tax costs that I, that I pay out. So how should people approach that? Yeah. So with the, the Roth, as we said earlier, you're, you're making a bet. You're paying taxes up front. 
uh, earlier than you would otherwise have to. So to offset that front loading of the taxes, you need years of tax-free growth within the IRA or within the Roth IRA to make up for that. If you're somebody who converts much later in life, life expectancies being what they are, there's less of a chance that you're going to see that account catch up to what it should have been or would have been had you left it in the traditional IRA. Somebody who converts maybe when they're 80 and has a shorter life expectancy may not be able to see that Roth grow enough to make up for the fact that they front loaded the taxes. Somebody who's younger in their 50s or 60s or so has a much greater chance of seeing that Roth exceed the value of what the account would have been. But again, you have to keep in mind that if you're doing the Roth, part of the reason you're probably doing it is because you don't. these are dollars you don't need. So your, your plan was really to leave it to your heirs anyways. So in that case, it may be more of an estate planning vehicle. You may not personally see the benefit of it in your account, but these were dollars you maybe were planning on spending anyway. Your heirs will benefit from it down the road, the way the numbers work out in most cases. Okay. So this is clearly a place to get some tax advice, but one strategy that, that you sometimes hear is that partial conversions can often be advisable That versus converting a whole IRA balance that maybe you'd want to take it in several increments. Let's talk about the benefits of doing that partial approach. So the, the one thing you don't want to do is say, I've got a million dollar IRA balance. I'm going to convert the entire thing today. Put me in a bracket that I would never be in any otherwise. You know, in a normal year, I would never have income that high. So I'm going to pay a much higher tax rate on that IRA than I ever would had I left. That doesn't make sense to do. Um, what you, what, another strategy that people used to do is say, well, just do a big conversion now and then see how the rest of the tax year goes. Figure out how much you really want to leave in there and then recharacterize the rest. Undo that conversion so you get to the right amount that you're willing to pay tax on. Well, that went away a couple of years ago when the TCJA got rid of the whole recharacterization idea. So now you have to be very careful and tactical about your Roth conversions. And here we are in, you know, in the first half of 2020. It's been a pretty, pretty interesting year in terms of everybody's income. A lot of people don't have any idea what their taxable income is going to look like this year. So they're hesitant to commit to a Roth conversion now without knowing what else is going to be going on in their situation. But they also want to take advantage of the lower market values today. So what you can do is maybe kind of split that in half a little bit and do a little bit of both. Do a smaller conversion now. You might have some idea where your income is going to be. Do a, enough of a conversion to maybe get you close to where you want to be in terms of taxable income. And then as you get into later in the year, come November, December, you can maybe do any additional conversions to, to true up or fine tune to get yourself to that income target you're shooting for. So maybe do a smaller one now and then and then uh, you know finish it up later in the year. That may be a, a good strategy for folks who want to do something but aren't sure exactly the right. Okay. Another consideration is the tax bill and where you will get the funds for that tax bill. Mm -hmm. You say it's really important to make sure that you have the funds external to the IRA, that you don't want to have to take extra from the IRA in terms of your conversion and additional funds to, to pay the tax bill. Right. Yeah. So when we've run the numbers on this, the, the best way to maximize the benefit of a Roth is when you take dollars out of the traditional IRA and put them into the Roth, the taxes that are doing that come from other dollars. If you have a taxable account that you've got a checking account or something like that, if you have to take money out of the IRA and use those dollars to pay the taxes on the conversion, you don't have enough left to go into the Roth to really get the tax-free growth that you need to justify the conversion. And if you're under 59 and a half when you do that, if you take money out of the traditional IRA and it doesn't go to the Roth, you take money out of that to pay taxes, you get it with a 10% penalty on those dollars too. So especially for younger converters, you really need to have money out of the IRA to pay the taxes. But even if you're older, um, the idea is to get as much into that Roth as possible 
And if you're taking money out of the IRA, you want it to go to the Roth, pay the taxes with something else. That really makes them the numbers work out best. Let's talk about this backdoor Roth IRA maneuver. It's um, a technique that higher income folks have been using if they've been shut out of direct Roth IRA contributions. That's essentially doing a conversion. Let's talk about that for 2020. I assume that that's still an option, correct? Yeah, it's it's still an option as much as it's always been an option. There has been a little bit of concern. Is this really what the IRS intended? No, it clearly was not what they intended when they changed the rules on Roth several years ago. But people have been doing it for a long time now. It's kind of become a, well, this is the way things are now. So Roth, backdoor Roth conversions have kind of become an accepted thing these days. Um, the the idea is if you're not, if your income is too high to put money directly into a Roth, you put money into a traditional IRA first. Your income is too high to get a deduction for it, so you don't get any tax benefit for putting it in there. But that makes it all after-tax dollars in the IRA. You then convert that because you never deducted those dollars to begin with. They're tax-free when they come out, go to the Roth. You effectively get money into the Roth via the traditional, which is, again, not the original intent, but that's the way it worked out. That could be a great strategy for those who are looking to get money into a Roth IRA, but who aren't otherwise eligible. There's a big hiccup with that, though, and that is there's this thing called the pro rata rule. And it says that if you have any other IRA dollars, traditional IRA, SEP IRA, simple IRA, any of those types of accounts, those dollars have to be considered part of what you're pulling from to do the conversion. So in other words, you may set up a, an account, a traditional IRA that holds this now after-tax contribution you're making, plus another IRA that has money from a 401k rollover from many years ago, for example. You can't just go to the IRA you put the money into now and say, these are my after-tax dollars. I'm going to pull these out and put them into the Roth. Mechanically, you can do that. But from a tax standpoint, that's not how it works. This pro rata rule says you have to treat that as if it came partially from that new account you set up and partially from the bigger rollover account that you've got on a pro rata basis. Somebody who's got a large IRA from other contribution sources or a rollover or something like that is going to find the backdoor Roth really isn't going to work for them. It's just not going to provide them the benefit that they might get. Ideal candidates for a backdoor Roth are those uh, individuals who have never worked. Maybe you're a spouse who's never worked. You're, you've got one spouse who has been the breadwinner all your careers. You have not. You don't have a traditional IRA. You'd be an ideal candidate for a backdoor Roth. Or the inverse of that is true. Somebody who has worked at one position all their life and putting money in their 401k and never done a rollover and never funded a traditional IRA on their own. That's another great candidate for a backdoor Roth. But if you're somebody who does have your own traditional IRA or a SEP or a simple, backdoor is probably not going to be the best strategy for you. Tim, it's always great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks again for having me, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long view with Morningstar's new podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. And lastly, Christine Benz and Tim Steffen discuss how retired investors can handle their RMDs this year. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. Retired investors will be able to put their required minimum distributions on hold for 2020. Joining me to discuss what that means for retirees is Tim Steffen. He's an advisor education consultant for PIMCO. Tim, thank you so much for being here. Great to see you again, Christine. Great to see you too. So let's delve into this, um, starting with the suspension of, of RMDs. What's the thinking uh, behind Congress putting RMDs on hold for this year? 
Well, I think people were concerned about having to, you know, being forced to take money out of their retirement plans at a time when asset values are lower, accounts have been beaten up there for a period of time uh, due to the, uh, uh, you know, the market volatility we've seen. So I think it was just an idea, let's let people leave their assets alone. Certainly if you need to take money out, if you want to take money out, you can. But the fact that they were forcing people to take out money in perhaps a pretty rough market, um, they decided to just give people some flexibility. We've seen these kind of things before. Where we've had significant volatility like this where they've, they've waived RMDs uh, and given you some flexibility for those who do want to take money out and maybe even take more out. They've given you some flexibility and be able to avoid some of the taxes and penalties on those things too. So they kind of give you flexibility on both ends of these situations. Okay. And part of the idea too was um, I know that balances were really inflated at the end of 2019 and the RMD amount for 2020 would have been based on 2020, 2019 year end balances. Right. right. Yeah. The good news is we're coming off a great year in the market where, you know, account values were pretty inflated and they actually started off pretty, pretty well in 2022. But uh, the RMD numbers are going to be, you know, in terms of a percentage of your current balance or could have been pretty steep. So uh, this is a nice benefit they gave everybody or the retirees for that. Okay. So this applies to anyone who would have been subject to RMDs essentially. So even people who inherited IRAs, it's really yeah. a, a very broad suspension of, yeah. of RMDs, correct? It really is. In fact, it was so broad, they even threw one that nobody really expected. And that is people who turned 70 and a half in 2019 didn't have to take their RMD for that year until April 1st of this year. If those people deferred it, those RMDs were waived as well. So really, anybody who turned 70 and a half in 2019 might have been able to waive two RMDs, not just the one for this year. Uh, the flip side of that, though, is not every single account was able, you're able to waive the RMDs. There's one uh, kind of unique account. If you have a 457 plan that's a non-governmental plan, usually those are typically issued by uh, state employees or something like that or federal employees. If you have a non-governmental 457 plan, you do still have to take an RMD for this year. Uh, if you've annuitized a, an annuity, you have to continue to take that. Um, if you're on a 72T program, you have to continue to take those distributions or you could end up blowing your 72T. But for the most part, uh, the RMDs are going to be uh, our way for most uh, individuals, most retirees. So it's a, it's a nice, including, as you said, the beneficiaries of inherited accounts as well. Okay. So conventional tax planning wisdom is that I should delay any tax bill that I possibly can if I can. So does it seem like most people will want to avoid taking money out of their IRAs if they can afford to? It sure feels like it. Um, you know, you hear from a lot of retirees that they don't like to take RMDs because they don't want to have to pay the tax liability. They'd rather push that off down the road. So anytime the government says you're required to do something, people are going to push back on it. So the flexibility they've given now to say, well, you, you're not required to. You certainly can if you want. And we'll even give you a little bit of breaks on some of those here if you chose to do that. But you're not required to. So, yeah, I think there's going to be a fair amount of people who will take advantage of that. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is you've got people whose income situations are much different this year. If you had somebody who was older but continuing to work, maybe they're not able to work now. So they may need to take those distributions out of the IRAs anyways. They're not required, but they might be doing it anyways. Okay. So let's talk about uh, people who already took their RMDs. There's been a lot of confusion about this. Some people do like to take their early RMDs so they don't forget. What are their options at this point? 
Yeah, a lot of people wait to take their RMDs till the end of the year, leave the money in the IRA as long as possible. Others say, no, I'm going to take it on a pro rata basis, kind of dollar cost average my way out during the year. Um, so the people who started with their RMDs right in January or February were caught off guard by this. So all of a sudden they were told those distributions you took, you didn't have to do that anymore. Uh, so they've given, there's some opportunities to return that money back to the account. The, the main one is what we call the 60-day rollover. This has been around for a long time. Anybody who takes money out of a retirement account has 60 days to put that money right back into the same account or, or, or similar type of retirement account. And it's treated as if you didn't take the distribution. Some limitations on that, the big one being you can only do that once every 365 days. So somebody who had already done one maybe later in 2019 isn't eligible to take advantage of that this year. Uh, but if you if you had not done one of those, uh, you could do that 60-day rollover. Um, the trick is it's it's a pretty tight 60 days. There's not often a lot of flexibility with that. They did offer up one form of flexibility, which we can get to. But um, in general, if you're on day 61, you're probably not going to be able to put that money back, at least under the traditional rules. Um, they did create a little bit of flexibility on that, though, as part of the whole delaying of tax returns and kind of all tax things uh, that were due in April. They also threw in a little bone for people who had taken retirement plan distributions. What they said is that, if your 60-day window ended on April 1st or later, that 60-day deadline gets extended to July as well. So anybody who took, what that, what that ultimately means is anybody who took money out of their retirement plan between or since February 1st really doesn't have 60 days. They've got until July to put that money back into the retirement account. So the 60-day thing was still there for people who took money out in January and got it in there quickly enough after the rules changed. There's actually pretty good flexibility for people who took money out uh, in February or later. And then there's a couple of other things we can, we can get into, too, on the uh, distributions uh, related to some of the CARES Act things. But that's the big one is the 60-day thing. Okay. So let's talk about some tax planning strategies for retirees who find themselves in this situation where they don't necessarily need their RMDs. They may potentially be able to take advantage of that opportunity to maybe be in a, a temporarily lower tax bracket. What strategies should they be con considering? I know Roth IRA conversions, so converting traditional IRA assets to Roth has been uh, floated out there as potentially something to consider. Let's talk about that and, and any other strategies for tax saving due to being in a temporarily low tax bracket. Yeah. So for a lot of retirees, the RMD may be their biggest source of taxable income. Uh, you take that off the table, now their taxable income drops dramatically. Now, they may still have to pull some of that money out. They just may not need the full RMD for this year. So they'll still have some taxable income. Um, but they may find themselves still in a lower bracket than they otherwise would have been. They can take advantage of that now. The big one, as you said, is Roth conversions. Uh, the idea of taking money out of your traditional IRA, paying tax on it, but immediately moving into into a Roth IRA where it can grow tax-free for the rest of your life. That technique is fully available for anybody. They got rid of the income limits many years ago. Uh, so if you're someone who is uh, in a, find yourself in a lower tax bracket than you otherwise might find yourself in, that may be something to take advantage of. Uh, you, know, you, you can convert those dollars at a tax rate that you might not otherwise have ever been able to get into. It also has the added benefit of once that money's out of the traditional IRA and into the Roth, your future RMDs from the traditional IRA are now going to be lower because the base is lower in that account. So it gives you kind of a double benefit, tax-free growth going forward, plus smaller RMDs into the future. Now, realizing taxable capital gains at a lower rate might be another idea. So apart from what's going on with your IRAs, maybe looking at your taxable accounts, if you have big gains in those yeah. accounts, maybe 
and you wanted to reduce some of those positions, this might be a good year to do that too. You probably don't have a lot of gains that have generated during 2020, but you might have brought some gains into this year that are still out there that you may want to, as you're thinking about rebalancing or diversifying the portfolio a little bit. Um, you remember, there's a, a tiered structure on capital gains, just like ordinary income. You've got a 0% rate and a 15 and a 20. Uh, if you find yourself that without the RMD, you can get yourself below that break point for the 0% capital gains. And for a married couple, that would be capital gain or, or income of about $80,000. If you're below that $80,000 threshold, you can recognize gains up to that amount and not have to pay tax on them. So let's say you've got $50,000 of other income, you could have $30,000 of gains, you realize at a 0% rate. Or you might be somebody who's normally in the 20% or even the 23% of that 3.8% Medicare tax you have to deal with. Now you might find yourself outside of that or below those thresholds, realizing gains while still not tax-free you might still be at the 15% rate, still a lot lower than what it might have otherwise been. And for people who are reluctant to sell things because of the taxes, this may be that little extra push that they need to perhaps get their portfolios back in line after everything else that's happened these last couple of months. I want to talk about qualified charitable distributions. For, for a lot of investors, they kind of go hand in hand with required minimum distributions. Even though RMDs are on hold, you can still do the QCD Let's talk about the advantage of doing that, Tim, in a year when you're not required to take any money out of your IRA at all. Sure. So just to recap, qualified charitable distributions, that's a direct distribution from your IRA to a charity. Um, They've always been tied to RMDs because they happen to be at the same age that you could do it. You had to be 70 and a half um, and you could use that towards your RMD. Uh, One of the big things that came out of the SECURE Act from earlier or later last year is that when they bumped the RMD age up to 72, they kept QCDs at 70 and a half. So you've got this period of time, this couple calendar year window where you could take IRA distributions, give them right to charity and not have to count them, or it wouldn't even be part of your RMD. It would just be a way to start diversifying out of your IRA or liquidating it down. And that can still make sense for folks. We see that a lot, especially these days, after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and the fact that very few taxpayers itemize anymore. Most people don't get a benefit for their charitable contributions. The numbers show that in 2018, like 10% of of tax returns showed itemized deductions. It used to be more like 30%. So two-thirds of the people that used to get a benefit for their charitable gifts don't anymore. So QCDs are a way to get a tax benefit for those gifts. Now, it's not the same this year because you're not offsetting a required minimum distribution. You don't have that to take anymore, so you don't get the same exact tax benefit of a QCD that maybe you did in the past. But again, if you're going to give money to charity that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get a deduction for because you're below the standard, then using the QCD can be a way to do that, reduce some of those IRA dollars, to avoid a future tax liability when you have to take that money out. QCDs are very valuable still even today under these situations. So you mentioned that very few taxpayers are itemizing today. Let's talk about this um, special above the line deduction Mm -hmm. for charitable contributions. It's not big, but um, say a retiree wants to do a QCD. Can they also take that above the line deduction on on $300? Yeah, so one of the things that came out of the CARES Act is a brand new, permanent, above-the-line charitable deduction. It's not a big number. It's $300. Uh, So even for somebody in the top tax bracket, you're only going to save yourself about $100 of tax or so. So it's not material from that standpoint, but it is a $300 deduction that you didn't get a couple of months ago. And it's a permanent thing, unlike most of the things in these other relief acts that have been temporary. This $300 deduction is permanent. It's only for people who don't itemize. So if you were somebody who took the standard deduction, you weren't getting any benefit for your charitable gifts, now you can get $300 worth of deduction for that. 
couple quick things. It does have to be cash. You can't give it to a donor advised fund or certain other types of organizations. And, you're, and you can do that in addition to your QCD. So the $300 deduction you get would be a separate gift you'd write. It wouldn't come from your IRA. You would do it from your regular taxable account, your checking account, whatever you would do. Um, but you could do that in addition to the qualified charitable distribution. So it's a way to, to a couple of different ways for people who don't itemize to maybe get a tax benefit for their charitable gifts. Okay, Tim, it's always great to get your insights. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks again, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.